You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Matthew records these words for us. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the water swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, Send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is God's Word. The Two Sessions is one of the most important uh, political conferences held in Beijing, China, uh, every March. Uh, To go to that is a privilege, but also they want the general public to attend as well. Delegates will include politicians, military leaders, uh, basically a who's who in China will be their tech giants as well. Uh, The two-week-long conference features speeches as fascinating as this one. Improving consumption, promoting systems and mechanisms to unleash the potential of personal consumption. Right away, I think you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. That does not sound exciting, which is the exact problem China is finding. This is billed as an opportunity to hear what the Communist Party is doing and how it's benefiting the country. And they're finding that people just don't wanna go. It's boring and it's monotonous. They've even brought technology into this. At last year's conference, they used facial recognition uh, to be able to pick up if people were falling asleep during the conference. And if so, you would receive a message saying, your action right now is demonstrating disloyalty to the party. They even brought in a rap artist this year, a well-known Chinese gentleman, uh, to try to promote enthusiasm to want to attend the two sessions. But all of that got me thinking about how we approach sometimes March and April in the life of a church. Because I think most of us anticipate if you go to church during that time, you're probably going to hear a message related to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And is it possible sometimes we forget why that message should not be seen as mundane or merely repetitive, 
but actually should be seen as life transforming. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew this morning, because our goal is, as we find ourselves in the month of March and looking ahead to celebrating Easter Sunday in April, is to have that message continually challenge and change us. And I think the way we can do that is both simple and maybe profound. Tell people the truth about Jesus. And we started that last week looking at from Mark's gospel, Jesus is the crucified Savior. This morning we'll consider how Matthew tells us Jesus Christ is the sovereign Savior and King. But I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 8. And you notice our reading this morning consisted of two very interesting narratives. Uh, one dealing with the calming of a storm, uh, the other with two demonic individuals that Christ encounters on the other side of the shore. Uh, keep in mind that Matthew's the writer of this particular gospel. He's the former tax collector turned apostle, so follower of Christ Jesus. Uh, in this particular gospel, there are over 60 quotations from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, Matthew wants us to connect that Jesus Christ as the sovereign Savior is the promised Messiah. But also quite interesting is in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, you find half of all the miracles recorded in the gospel of Matthew. In other words, these two chapters are packed with a little section on teaching and then usually miraculous events that Christ is involved in. And so Matthew is deliberately pointing our attention to what it means to speak of Christ's authority and how he is an all-powerful Savior. So look at me at verses 23 through 25. The first narrative is going to highlight Jesus Christ's authority over the natural and physical world. Christ's authority over the natural and physical world. And so as you get to verses 23 through 25, you have a, a very vivid description of a storm. Uh, now this same account is found in Mark and in Luke, so you can cross-check and look at that at a later point in time. Matthew tends to give you the details that are concise enough for you to understand the significance of the event. Uh, Mark and Luke kind of add some other details that are important, but, but you don't necessarily need to know those. Uh, the way I would compare it is maybe the difference if I told you a story and my wife told you a story. My wife's story would have a lot more other details, might be more fascinating, mine tends to be, all right, here's what happened, now you know. Uh, so that's sort of Matthew's approach. It's going to be concise, but it tells us exactly what we need to know. So notice the vivid description. Starts out in verse 23. After a day of ministering in the region of Galilee, Mark indicates that this was late towards evening. Uh, it says, Then he, Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up in the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Now, if you know anything about the geography of the Sea of Galilee, which seems to be in mind here, uh, it was known to have these storms that could come out of nowhere uh, because of the different pressures being below sea level, valleys around it, and mountains. 
So it's not unusual for this to happen, but Matthew heightens, this was without warning. So they left not anticipating any difficulties, was simply going across, getting to the other side, and having a quiet evening together. But then Matthew goes on and tells us it was, it was not just a storm, it was a furious storm. Uh, this is the same word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to indicate an earthquake. Now, it's not saying there was an earthquake, but it's saying this storm was, was loud. I was just reading in Colorado where they were hit with a surprising blizzard uh, that was talking about it was a window-rattling blizzard. And maybe you want to think of this scene as something that would rattle you, uh, this loudness of the storm that comes upon them suddenly. And then he tells us the waves begin to sweep over the boat. Uh, and I don't know how many of you have ever done some boating or sailing, uh, but I know enough that that's not a good thing. You don't want water going into the boat. So it's a terrifying scene, and least we forget, where's Jesus? He's exhausted. He, he's asleep when all this is happening. So that sets the brief description. These are the conditions. What's going to happen in those conditions? What's possibly running through the mind of the disciples? Now, it mentions they got into a boat. Um, not that long ago, there was a boat found that basically would resemble the structure of probably boats seen typically in this day. Uh, it's in a museum right now. Uh, and so pretty much you could maybe fit six people in a boat. So there's more than one boat, but Jesus is in this boat with part of his disciples. There's obviously others who are also coming alongside. So now you go on to the reaction of the disciples, which is not any different, I think, than if we were there. It says, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They understand this is a serious storm. Now, remember, they're, they're seasoned fishermen. They, they've seen storms. They've been out on the Sea of Galilee. Certainly other times when things like this have occurred to a lesser degree. But in the midst of possibly darkness, the loud sound, the severity of this, it is a terrifying event. And they're quick to say, Lord, save us. Now, the, the word Lord, you may realize, can be used at times as a term of respect, just simply honor. But, but when you see it used in this context and, and off the lips of the disciples and other cases in the New Testament, it's, it's used in a much richer way. It's a combination of calling upon one who has both power and authority. So they not only have the ability to do things, they have the right to do things. So where else would you turn in the midst of this but hopefully to one who would have all authority. And yet it's very evident that what follows, even in a sense, could not have been anticipated by the disciples. That as much as they knew Christ, and this maybe being two-thirds of the way into his public ministry, yet what would unfold here would surprise them in terms of the authority and power that he held over the natural world. But let's go on a little bit further and see what Matthew has to tell us. In verse 26, he says, Jesus replied. So they wake him up. They're saying, Lord, save us. 
he speaks and stops and talks to them. Now, the other Gospels just have the reverse of this. Mark and Luke say, he calmed the storm, then he turned to them. It's interesting that Matthew chronologically looks at this and says, here is this one who has all authority. He's in no panic. This is no threat to him. Some premature end to their ministry that they all die, you know, and drowned in the lake. But he stops first, and rather than speaking to the storm, he first speaks to them. Now, again, place yourself in that situation. You'd be like, come on, come on, come on. You know, stop the storm. You got to tell us something. Do that afterwards. But Jesus has something to say to them. You of little faith. Now, he doesn't say no faith because clearly they've been following him. They are his disciples. But the reality is they haven't grasped as much as they should have who he is. And I think if I were to ask all of you, does Jesus Christ have authority? Can he do anything? We'd be like, yes, anything in accordance with his nature. But do we live our lives with that reality before us? Or do we tend to, to panic at the first trial or difficulty we find ourselves facing? Do we tend to be filled with anxiety and worry rather than saying, wait a minute, Jesus Christ has all authority and power. I, I, I can trust him. And so notice what happens next in verse 26. He does speak to them. Then it says, he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, anyone who might be trying to say, well, this is just coincidence, notice the details would indicate this is a miraculous event. Because it's not that he just happens to speak to the wind and the waves, and then suddenly the conditions over the Sea of Galilee die down like they could other times. But this is an instantaneous, immediate calmness comes over the water. And just if any of you have ever watched, been at a lake, you know, it doesn't just stop automatically when there's waves or whitecaps. There's a slowness to it's finally setting down the ripples and everything else. No, no, this is instantaneous. So much so that clearly the disciples as fishermen indicate by their actions they have never seen anything like this. I mean, who, as, as you get to their reaction, it's one of amazement and, and also reverence here. It says the men were amazed. And this may tell us not just the disciples, but if there were other accompanying groups who witnessed this, they're amazed. Uh, the word amazed means to be filled with wonder. But, but even that doesn't necessarily do it justice. Um, it's used in other contexts where you, you respond to a miracle or an action that is clearly of God. Uh, in other words, it's, it's where you see something face to face that's beyond human comprehension. We could say the disciples have their, their breath taken away by this. They don't know what to say. And I would love to add to that, even Peter, who always seems to have something to say, must have kind of almost been left there with their mouth open. We, we thought we knew who this 
man was. But apparently, we don't really know him like we should. What a reminder, even to us, as we go through our weeks, you know, do we stop and truly live in a way that demonstrates this is the Christ that we know. This is the Christ who has saved us. We, we love to, certainly I'm sure many of us complain, talk about the weather. We all want spring to come. We can't believe it when we look out and there's still snow flurries. And we realize the frustration is we can do nothing. We can want it to happen, but we can't do anything about it. Notice in this scene, it's not just the disciples would have liked the waves to stop. They were completely powerless. It's the authority of Jesus Christ here that stands out. But we quickly transition now to a second narrative. So in the first narrative, we are reminded of Christ's power and authority over the natural, physical world. But then you go on to verses 28 and following. The second narrative encounters a different example. Here we see Jesus Christ's authority over the supernatural world. So it's one thing to speak of physical creation, the natural world. But now we're delving into his power has no limits. So as the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. And yet his kingdom would initially be ushered in, and it would be a spiritual, in a sense you could say, invisible kingdom. He would even reference this and say, the kingdom of God is already here among you. Now, it will one day become that universal, visible kingdom. But we can say, presently Christ does reign now. When he came to earth, his death, resurrection, inaugurated that kingdom. So then look closely at verses 28 and 29. It says, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Now, right away, the interaction there should say something to us about what do we know about the nature and knowledge of demons? So the Bible addresses the subject of the demonic, addresses the subject of Satan. Notice in our world today, when people will look at the shooting in New Zealand, uh, those who do not believe in God or really do not adopt a biblical worldview have a very difficult time explaining where evil comes from. You know, they might try some weak attempts like, well, maybe his family background was such and such. Um, you know, he didn't have any good role models, things like that. But that really does not answer the question. What is at the root of such evil and destructive thinking and behavior? One of our strengths as Christians is we have an answer to that question. And that is the source of all evil is Satan. And we should not feel that that is somehow a weak trump card we play. It is a biblical answer. And so as you look at this scene, you have these, these demon-possessed individuals. In other words, they, they are human beings, but they are literally controlled, influenced by a demonic spirit. 
Uh, and, and I believe that what demonic spirits are, are non-elect angels. Those angels who rebelled with Satan, that one-time act. And here they do have the ability to indwell and control others. But notice in this picture, we're told something that reflects the nature of Satan. One, they are extremely violent. Uh, notice they're living in a place that's associated with defilement. They, they've sort of moved outside the town, kind of. They're, they're living in the area of graves and tombs. Which right away, you know, anything about Old Testament history, you know, you, you come in contact with that, that would consider yourself to be defiled. So their physical setting kind of reveals spiritually they, they're unclean. They're, they're ungodly. Uh, Mark tells us not only were they violent, uh, but, but they continually kind of sat and, and cried and, and like self-mutilated their bodies. What, what a destructive picture of Satan's activity when he controls someone. He's not interested in their, their finding purpose or meaning in life. Uh, they are a mere means to, to try to attempt to rob God of his glory. So these men are violent. They're outside of society. No one really knows what to do with them. Uh, again, Mark and Luke tell us they, they've tried chaining these individuals up and, and they break their shackles. But, but then you also see in this, they know who Christ is. Because you see in verse 29, they ask, what do you want with us, son of God? So you could make it the case that, as James tells us, Satan's theology is, is right. He knows there's only one God. Even non-elect angels recognize Jesus is the Son of God, not in the sense of a confession of repentance, but just a mere physical, spiritual, mental head knowledge. Because the title Son of God means you are one divinely chosen to be king. And then there, the next part of their statement, you go on and says, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Now the phrase appointed time, not just means like a general vague time, uh, but it means a very decisive moment. So in other words, not only is it fair to assess from this, that demons and Satan know who Jesus is, they also know their eventual judgment. So they don't question here, are we going to be judged by you? Will we be tormented in everlasting punishment? They simply say, is, is now the time? Like, isn't this premature that you're here already to judge us? So we've moved from them seeing Christ demonstrate authority over the natural world to now delving into the supernatural world. And you want to kind of think, why is Matthew place these things in this order? Not only do they happen relatively the same time frame here, but is Matthew trying to get us to understand what it means to say that Christ is a sovereign savior? So going on in verse 31, Jesus displays his power. Once again, in an unmistakable way. 
Notice that it says some distance away in verse 30 was a large herd of pigs that was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now you can look at this text and, and raise lots of questions. One is, by the fact that they're pleading with Jesus, we, we know you're going to cast us out. So it, at least cast us out into some other living thing so we possibly don't have to face punishment or torture. Now the fact that they beg him, why would that be important? And Jesus isn't suggesting here we should try to entertain and get into a dialogue with demons or anything like that. He's the son of God. He has the authority and power to speak. But the fact that they have to request tells us that Satan and his demons cannot do anything without it being ordained and permitted by God. Now, does that mean we can always understand why God permits and ordains certain things? No. We can't always understand the reason. Part of that at times is part of God's secret will. But notice here the authority of Christ that, that even these demons cannot in any way tell Christ what he must or mustn't do. Very interesting, you compare this phrase here when they say that you are the Son of God. Think back earlier in Matthew 4 when Jesus encounters Satan and he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan says to him, if you are the Son of God, which tells us once again Satan's deceptiveness. He knew Jesus was the Son of God. Just like his demons here know Jesus is the Son of God. But Jesus displays his power. He will send the demons out, not so they can risk going into other people, but he sends them into this herd of pigs. This isn't anything where, you know, as Christians, we have to say, well, this is, you know, bad for animal rights. Jesus was doing an act of great love here, saying, if you're going to go out, you're going to go into these pigs. Maybe commenting even on the sense of you're going to go into an unclean animal because you yourselves are unclean, just like the father of lies. Mark and Luke tell us this, this was not a little group of pigs. Imagine the noise and activity when, when Mark and Luke tell us it was about 2,000 pigs that went racing down the hillside and, and drowned in the water. If the disciples in the boat were left wondering, well, what kind of man is this? What do you think they were thinking now? Where, where does his power and authority end? He speaks and the waves and the wind stop. He just speaks and I think a very calm, maybe with, with conviction, authoritative voice, and, and, and demons go running. But the story doesn't end there. Because there's another part of this that maybe comes closer home to all of us. And that is, what are the responses to the authority of Christ? Knowing that he has authority over all physical creation, 
knowing he could even command all the forces and armies in heaven, both of Satan's and of his own angels, elect angels. How does that bear on me and you? Well, you go on in this story to verse 33 and 34. There's two opposite reactions to the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 34 we read, or verse 33, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, and, and if you didn't read any further, we might think this is going to be one of those great endings. It's going to be a hallmark ending. Music plays, they see Jesus, they fall down before him and say, you are the sovereign savior. We love you. But notice what it says. The whole town saw him. They pleaded with him to leave their region. So you have two different reactions here. Those who see this run to the town, talk about it. And I can't help but think sometimes when it comes to the authority of Christ, we talk about it but we really do nothing with that. It, it doesn't change our lives. And in fact, maybe for some of us, we, we go even one step further. We want nothing to do with that. That, that there's a scariness about that that says, if, if he is who he says he is, and I acknowledge him for that, my life is going to be changed. And I don't want my life changed. In this very sad picture, you have the majority of the town saying, you know what, our, our swine are more important to us than our salvation. We, we want our comfort. We, we just want to be left alone. No more damage. Please, just, just go. Go somewhere else with your message and with your teaching. What, what a sad plight, but a very common, all too common response to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we almost might miss here, well, well, where's the positive response? Like, where are those who, who see what he has done and they humble themselves before him, they acknowledge him as Savior, and they obey him because he has all authority? Well, in looking at this count, you could go back to verse 27 and say, well, the disciples respond in some kind of reverence and awe. And I think that's true. But I want you to catch something in verse 33 that we almost pass. At the end of that verse, it says, they, they told everybody what happened, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, you may have noticed what did happen to them. Well, turn with me to Mark chapter 5, because Mark and Luke tell us the details as to what happened. Now, as you get to Mark and Luke, uh, I should caution you, you're going to notice they tell it more from the perspective of one man. And it could be that only one responded positively and the other left, completely glad that now he could think and respond like a rational person. But in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, we're told what did happen to at least one of these men. 
who is there. Beginning at verse 18 of Mark 5, we read, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Jesus. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell it in the Decapolis area of ten cities how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Here's a picture of someone who responds to the authority of God's grace in Christ because God changes his heart. What a difference. A town that begs him to leave versus an individual who first begs, may I go with you? And then Jesus says, you know what? The, the power that you just saw is now the same power that's in work in you. And I want you, by that power, to go home. Tell your family. Tell the people all around, whoever you meet in this area, what you have seen God do. Could it be that Matthew wants us to understand that same truth? Not just speak of the authority of Christ over sin and death, but even beyond that, that same power is now at work in you and me if we know Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And our response should be no different than one of these men who just simply said, Lord, I, I want to be with you. I want to serve you. I want to tell others this message. See, unlike the conference in China, this message is not meant to be boring. It is to be life-changing. The more you tell it, the more it is to change you, as it will change those who respond by God's grace, recognizing the obedience of and submission to a sovereign Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we have talked about your authority, talked about your power, but then walked away. May we grasp by your grace what it means to say you're not just a crucified Savior, but you are our sovereign Savior and King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.